Thanks for listening to this episode of Unpacking Mental Health. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do this by clicking the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. And this is a $5 donation, which will keep the podcast ad-free. And I would love, love, love if you could give my Instagram and Facebook a follow and I will update you with the next podcast. So have a great day and I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm excited to speak with Lorraine McGuire. Lorraine talks about giving up drugs and alcohol at age 24 the panic attacks and food-related issues that followed and how she discovered rapid transformational therapy. Um, So 24 is a young age to be giving up drugs and alcohol and realizing a problem. Did you want to talk to me about what was happening before you quit and what was the catalyst to stop? Sure, yeah. Yes, it is very young, actually. And at the time, I was quite resentful at that. (laughs) I, I was like, I'm 24. But actually yeah. now I'm like so grateful for that because then I didn't have years more of, you know, alcoholism, alcoholic drinking, drugging, etc. So yeah. I was living in London um, at that point when I was 24. So I left New Zealand when I was 21. And I, I kind of left because I felt embarrassed of my drinking even then, but I didn't kind of consciously understand that at the time. But I can look back and go, yeah, I was kind of running away um, mm-hmm. and thinking that, yeah, I'll go overseas and, you know, live this high life. And I landed in in a, in a flat in London where there was a lot of drugs. Um, and I think when you kind of go to London, you can end up in a drug house or a drinking house is kind of how I saw it. And okay. there was like houses that lots of people went to the pubs and I ended up just because the only person I knew in London was in a house where they were taking drugs. So the first night I was given drugs um, and being kind of like a peer pressure, susceptible to peer pressure, you know, I just went, okay, then. Um, and what kind of drugs are we talking about? So that first night I was given ecstasy. Uh, this was the first time I'd ever had ecstasy. Uh, and then uh, his flatmate came home and sparked up a, a joint and um, he said, you know, have some. And my friend said, you know, have some. And I was like, oh, no, I don't smoke weed anymore because weed had made me paranoid. So okay. the thing about alcohol in my life, alcohol turned off my brain and all my fears and inhibitions and everything that was going on in the head. Drugs just kind of heightened that. So even before I left New Zealand, I realized that, you know, smoking marijuana just kind of made me paranoid and made me um think too much and so you know alcohol was the kind of the drug of choice but he was like no no it's really good if you um have it with um the ecstasy and so of course I went okay then and um smoked it and then basically threw up all over their kitchen on the very first night where I'd met these people in this flat you know (laughs) um and it was like one of those times where the the vomit was in my throat before I even knew like it wasn't like I felt sick and then I was sick it was like yeah. it just literally just kind of rushed up out of me it was quite a, a bizarre purging it. that's right so you know and that's exactly kind of what I know now but you know the body purges what it doesn't like right so um so yeah so I kind of fell into this lifestyle I mean I was already heavily drinking before I left New Zealand and I was already having blackouts so I had blackouts from the age of 16 so that's where you're Walking, talking, dancing, shagging, doing all sorts of things with absolutely no memory. Right. Even, yeah. So even when friends would tell me, this is what you did last night, I'd be like, I still don't remember it. And a lot of the times they they would say, oh, yeah, you're just just too embarrassed, you know, like you're ashamed. So you're saying you don't remember. And I was like, no, I honestly don't remember. So then sometimes I would go, yeah, oh, God, yeah, that was embarrassing. And I'd 
pretend like I remembered because, you know, sometimes I'd get ridiculed for not remembering. So I didn't know how to kind of be. So I, um, yeah, so for a period there in in London, I got into the, into the drugs quite heavily in this house and I didn't drink as much. And at first that was great because I lost weight and I, you know, was slimmer and I thought, oh yeah, look at me, I'm all cool, you know, going out to clubs and doing all of this kind of stuff. Um, but like I said, it didn't turn my head off. So all the fears, insecurities, lack of confidence, you know, low self-esteem, lack of self-belief was all still kind of right there in my head. Um, and uh, when I did um, speed, you used to get a jaw that would kind of, they call it gurning and your jaw kind of go. And so one time I was in a club and somebody pointed this out to me and that just made me then hyper aware of that. And so then I didn't like to take the drugs because it, you know, things would happen and it was happening to everyone around me, but I would get really self-conscious about those things. Yeah. So I kind of was like, that's it. I'm, I'm not doing the drugs. And I, uh, this was when I was 20. Two, I think. Uh, so I was like, that's it. I'm moving away. So I moved out of this house. I went to South Africa for three months, came back to London, landed in a different house, which was more of a drinking house. But then there was cocaine. And I had said I wouldn't do cocaine because um, one of my friends uh, in the previous house had been done and basically sent to prison. And, you know, he, he just completely had a personality change. And and so, um, but then all of a sudden I was in this new house and again, being susceptible to peer pressure and what was happening around me, I went, okay then. Um, and it was less obvious because people were working, people had jobs, good jobs, you know, one was in the bank, one was a lawyer, you know, like they were, you know, really respectable yeah. people and we all had jobs. I worked in the council and you know, but then at the weekends, we would just go hard with, with drinking and, and taking cocaine. And um, so it was kind of a little bit more uh, normalized, I suppose, it felt like. But yeah, I still... A respectable I, kind of partying. That's right. I know. It's like, it's okay now because I'm in this house with people with jobs. And, yeah, you know, yeah. like... Whereas, and the perception changes, doesn't it? Yeah. That, that's right. And um, and so, yeah, so, you know, a few, like a year or so of, of doing that, you know, like from 23 to 24, basically. And it just got more and more and more. And um, it was interesting. I When I did a talk recently, I found an old piece of paper that I must have written when I first got sober. And it was the last eight weekends before I got sober and basically out of the last eight weekends I was drunk or on drugs every single weekend even the weekend that I'd titled detox weekend um, I did cocaine and my friend said to me aren't you on a detox and I said I literally it was a cabbage soup diet actually cabbage soup diet detox thing and I grabbed the, the the diet book and I showed her and it said it doesn't say no drugs in here it only says no alcohol Right. You know, like that's how so you like, found the loophole. I found the loophole, you know, yeah. and 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 anyway, I was trying to lose weight, so you know, cocaine was going to help me lose the weight, whereas the alcohol wasn't. You know, there was, you know, the perceptions in my brain and the things that I thought and believed just weren't really sane anymore. You know, yeah, yeah, a bit distorted um, thinking. Yeah, 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 and so out of those last eight weekends, I had five, you know, severe blackouts, or sorry, eight eight blackouts over five weekends, and some of them were like a blackout on Friday and a blackout on a Saturday. Oh, and okay. not remembering what I was doing and doing shameful, embarrassing things, inappropriate behavior, 
And at this point, friends had started to point out, Lorraine, I think you've got a problem, yeah. you know. And um, sometimes I would think to my, I'd go on the outside, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm concerned too. And I was. I was starting to try and control it. I was like only buying a four-pack or a six-pack or um, I would mix like um, tonic with, with wine or something or, um, you know, like I wouldn't drink before I went out. I'd only drink at the pub. I was trying to do all these things to control it, which is when I realised I'm out of control because everything I was trying – wasn't working yeah and so yeah one of my friends uh, wrote me an amazing letter basically saying you know like I could I could lose you as a friend um but I'm going to write this letter anyway and he, he literally says slow down reassess regain control over your life I tell you this because you seem to have an indication that you think you are in control that you're actually not you're regularly using cocaine you know something that for a long time you wouldn't even touch you know, and now look at you, you recognized its soul destroying properties and its ability to deceive users long ago, but now you've decided it's okay. And um, so he wrote me that amazing letter and another friend sat me down and said, you know, I've got, you know, I'm worried about you. And on the outside, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm worried too. But on the inside, I was like, what? I've got a problem. You smoke weed, you do drugs, you drink, you know, like, mm, so what, yeah. you know, so because I was surrounded by it, that was the environment that I lived in. But when I got sober these last eight weekends, uh, I'd moved into, again, moved into another flat because I moved quite a bit, you know, <laughs> running away from the shameful things that I'd done. I'd just go somewhere else, you know, find some new yeah. people. Uh, one of them was someone from the past, so he had seen the whole process. But this house, they they drank, but they didn't drug, they, you know, as much. It was, again, a little bit a step, another step res more respectable than the, than the previous place. But um yeah, and so I just started to really see then, you know, like I stood out. So I wasn't one among many acting like this. I was the one that was every weekend in a blackout. I was the one every weekend that somebody was saying, do you know what you did last night, you know? Um, and I can remember one time coming downstairs and going, I remember what I did last night because I remembered going to bed. Yeah. And they were like, do you remember this, 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 and this? And I was like, ah. Oh. I'd had a blackout in the middle of the evening, gone into the blackout, done all this stuff, come out of the blackout, gone to bed thinking I remembered the whole night and I hadn't, right. you know. Yeah. So um, I got, yeah, a few of those weekends were pretty scary, things that happened to, you know, to a young 24-year-old girl, you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, somebody had put um, Alcoholics Anonymous's phone number in my mobile phone. And it was a bit of a joke, you know, aha, AA is the first number in my mobile phone. And to this day, no one's actually told me who did that. I still okay. don't know. 20 years on, I still don't know where that came from. Or I don't know, maybe I saw it in a when I was drunk and put it in. I actually don't know. Right. And, yeah. But it was, a, it was a little bit of a joke for a while, which was more funny for me than it was for other people because they were kind of like, you really should call it. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> a really big indication. <laughs> Exactly. And so I called it one night um, okay. after a weekend of in and out of blackout for four days and Easter weekend. So it was basically Thursday through Monday, you know, um, and I had not been out on the Thursday night because I didn't want to ruin the weekend because I knew that if I by this stage, I knew every time I drank, I was out of control. And so I didn't go out on the Thursday, but Friday through till the Monday when we came back from the holiday in and out of blackout, got into a strange man's car. Luckily, he was a nice man and he did drop me off at the house, you know. Um, flat, the flatmates came looking for me. Where have you been? You know, fights, arguments, all sorts of behaviour. Um, I grabbed a bottle of peach snaps and sculled three quarters of it before they wrestled it off me. You know, like it was, wow. yeah. yeah. And so it was like 
the scary behavior, drunken yeah. behavior now. Yeah, and you so, could have alcohol poisoning from that, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was really lucky that I didn't that weekend, actually. I was pretty sick, but I didn't get alcohol poisoning. Um, and so, yeah, so I called um, Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, I haven't had a drink since my first meeting. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so okay. it, it really worked. It really worked for me. Um I know I listened to one of your previous people and it didn't work for them and that's okay, you know, like it, it really, I don't go anymore. Um, I don't believe a lot of the things there as much as I did when I first got sober, but it got me sober mm-hmm. and I will yeah. forever be grateful to, um, and, and AA in London was amazing because we had raves, we had sober raves, we had yeah. like, oh, it was incredible, you know, like yeah. thousand people all dancing completely sober you know like you know so there was a lot of a a younger crowd you know um there was the um alcoholics anonymous and the narcotics anonymous crowds would merge together and have you know raves on boats and stuff all sorts of cool stuff so you you still because at first I was like oh my god I'm 24 and you go to a meeting and you're like my life's over and it's not fair and how come I have to stop drinking and things like that but now I just think the amazing life that I've been able to live sober yeah. And I'm so grateful that social media wasn't around because I would have been all over it with my antics. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I think about that too from my 20s. Like it wasn't really a thing that it was all over Facebook at that time. So thank yeah. goodness. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, so it was really kind of a mixture of the blackouts and the shameful, embarrassing things that I did when I was in blackout. The concern of my friends at the time. I mean, my family wasn't there, so I was, you know, living away from from home. Um, so they didn't see what I was like, you know, like, and I could hide it very well on the phone when I had phone calls. You know, life was great, you know, da da da. Um, the inability to stop, you know, once I realised I was trying to stop and I actually couldn't. Um, yeah. And even when I had like three or four, I would still go into blackout. So when in my kind of late teens, early 20s, I could probably drink, you know, almost a 40 ounce and still be standing and walking and talking and have a memory. At the end, I could have like three wines and boom, been in the blackout. And I could be swear to you, I only had three wines. And people would say, yeah, you didn't seem to drink that much last night, but you don't remember a thing again, you know? Right. Okay. Um, and my friends would say that like when I'd say, why didn't you stop me doing whatever? And they'd say, well, you told us you wanted to do it. And they, yeah. you know, like, and they said you weren't, because when I was in a blackout, I don't know, because I don't never saw myself, but it sounds to me from what they said that I didn't appear drunk, drunk, that I actually was speaking quite lucidly and saying, okay. you know, like, so I wasn't. Kind of like you were in control, so they couldn't yeah. tell you what to do. So, yeah. yeah. So, so they thought that I, when I was saying, no, I right. want to do this. They thought I actually was compass mentis enough to know what I was talking about, but I was in a total blackout. Right. That terrified me. And when I first went to um, meetings, I got taken to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in a mental hospital. It was quite close to where I lived. And so I used to go there and we used to go into the ward and bring people to the meeting. It was terrifying to see the actual effects you know, and it's called Korsakoff syndrome, wet brain, you know, and that's basically what a blackout is. Your brain's just so soaked that you're, (laughs) that you're, you've got a wet brain and, you know, and people end up in in nappies needing to be hand fed because they go into blackout and never come out. Purely just from alcohol. Yeah. Right. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So that terrified me seeing people my age, you know, and, and, you know, young people in these, you know, psychiatric wings, you know, of this hospital um, and seeing the state that they were in. So that actually did me a good thing, you Mm -hmm. know, did me a favor to kind of see that kind of stuff. So fear kept me sober for a while. 
um, until I got to the place where I actually love being sober now. Okay. Yeah. And you never, so I guess, did you struggle a lot in the beginning or was it? Um, yeah, yeah. So in the beginning, I still lived in that flat where they were still drinking and partying. Okay. And so I would lie in, like sometimes on a, so I used to go to a women's meeting on Friday and it was called the Chiswick Women's Happy Hour. And yeah. so we'd have the meeting. It was, I know, it's like we still had our alcohol references even yeah. for our meetings. Um, and so we'd go to the meeting and then after the meeting, we'd all go to Cafe Rouge for dinner and, and coffees and stuff. Okay. And so I'd have this great social connection with these women on a Friday and then I would go home and I'd get the tube home or the bus or whatever. And I'd get home and I didn't know what I was working, walking into. So sometimes I'd walk into a full-blown party. Sometimes I'd walk into the remainder of bottles and the pre-night, you know, the, the pre-drinking before you go into town mess. And, you know, I can remember one night there was a bottle of half-finished bottle of wine between me. It was on the coffee table between me and the TV and I was trying to watch TV and all I could see was this bottle of wine and it was going, drink me, drink me, you know. And so in the yeah. end I, and I was like, I was too scared to pick it up and put it in the fridge or the kitchen in case that I picked it up and just necked it. Yeah. Um, so in the end, I went to bed because I was like, I can't, you know, keep my mind off this bottle that's open there in front of me. Oh, and so that was a real... control Yeah, so that was a real challenge. Um, you know, and one of the things they say is pick up the phone before you pick up a drink. So, you know, sometimes I'd ring... I'd just been with these women and then I'd ring one of them saying, I've just got home and this is what's going on, you know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I, there'd be nothing, it would be quiet and peace and they'd just be watching TV or sometimes I'd get home and it'd be empty but then at 2, 3 in the morning they'd come home and one of the girls that had said to me, oh, you've got a problem and you need to get some help, as soon as I stopped, all of a sudden she missed her drinking partner because then she probably became the most drunk in the house after me. Uh, yeah. And so she'd come in and she'd breathe alcohol on me at 2, 3 in the morning, Lozzie, I miss you, I miss you, Lozzie, come and party, you know. And I'd be like, just get out, you know, and we ended up having a falling out. She actually moved out before me. I couldn't move out because I didn't have enough money to, to get my own place for about six months. So okay. the first six months of my sobriety, I spent a lot of time at meetings because I didn't want to be at home. Um, and so I almost did a meeting every day. Uh, right. Some days I'd do two meetings, you know, but it was, again, the social connection because a lot of the time we'd go to the meeting and then we'd go out for brunch if it was a Saturday morning or, you know, a group of us would then trek off to an afternoon meeting together or we'd go to the park and, you know, mm -hmm. like there was a great kind of social um, aspect to it as yeah. well. Um, and then right. I found, found my own place and kind of got out of the, the house where the alcohol was. It became a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. So with AA, I don't know a lot about it, but there's a 12-step program, yes. right? Yeah. So there's yeah. a whole bunch of things to kind of chew yeah. through to, and you get chips and things like that. Yeah, so I think it depends on where you are. Some, you know, some groups are really big on handing out chips and coins. You know, you've got your 30 days, your 60 days, 90 days, up to a year, and then every single year. Others aren't. Others are just like, no, we just say, yep, congratulations on your anniversary, okay. and that's it. Um, but, yeah, the 12 steps uh, is, you know, the program. I mean, I don't speak for AA. I don't go to AA anymore. But um, my experience was, yes, you do. You, there's a 12-step program. And, you know, you admit you're powerless over alcohol and then you work through through these steps. Uh, it's a spiritual-based program. So rather than religious, you can choose whatever. So I love that about it. It wasn't like you must believe in Jesus or God or anything like that. It was like a, a God of your understanding so, okay. so yeah. you know, I tried nature, I tried 
um, all sorts of different things, you know, before I came to came to my own understanding. Um, yeah. well, that's uh, interesting because I've always thought of it as religious, like quite religious, like you would do prayers and, you know, that, that might put some people off if they're not that way inclined. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there are there are prayers and things like that, but I think again, it's when you have that understanding that this is a spiritual program and it's a, a god of your understanding. And there's lots of atheists that I knew as well that that had never um, had a god of you know never chose to believe in God, and it still worked for them. Mm. You know, so there'd pe- there'd be people sitting in a meeting saying, "A god I choose not to believe in," you know, <laughs> but I'm, yeah, right. but I'm still sober, you know, because yeah. they they can still work the the rest of the program. Yeah. Yeah. So um works for them. Ah, very cool. Okay. So from there, um you mentioned that you'd started to suffer from panic attacks and an extreme change in eating habits. So what happened there and how did you cope with that after Yeah. Time? So I think you know, for a bit of context, I mean, I've always had like there's either been food, drink, drugs, smoking. <laughs> there was always kind of something. And the food, um, you know, when I was, I used to overindulge and overeat, um, and especially sugar. And then when I got into the alcohol, the alcohol took over and I didn't overeat and stuff. So when I stopped drinking, my my diet was pretty average for, for that, you know, drinking type of person, but it was okay. Um, but around about six months sober, so I was I was gluten free because I had been diagnosed as celiac, but um, and, but I still ate out as long as they could say it was gluten free. I was like fine, and and if there was um, if there was some gluten in it, the worst thing that was going to happen was I was going to get you know vomiting or diarrhea and stomach pains. So the um, when I was about six months sober, I got sent on a work course, and I was running late, and I was stressed, and it was across the other type type. Part, part of um, London and I was you know stressed and I didn't kind of realize how stressed at the time and I had to go for this job or lose my job so I'd been moved into a different team I was kind of feeling kind of what I suppose now I know now is about imposter syndrome you know I wasn't feeling good enough and I wasn't feeling like you know I fit in and oh, I didn't deserve the job and stuff because I was newly sober I was still shaky you know uh, I didn't have withdrawals when I stopped so I didn't have any physical withdrawals so I'm going to this course and I eat the the we're in a hotel and I eat the meal and then we go back into the course and I'm sitting there and I'm getting stressed because I don't understand what they're saying and I have to go back and do a presentation to this new team of what I'm learning and I'm getting stressed because I don't know what I'm learning I don't you know I missed the beginning so I'm like feel like I'm lost and um and so then the food and then I started to get my gurgly stomach and I thought oh no there was gluten in what I've just eaten so I went up to the toilet, then all of a sudden my skin got itchy, my face, you know, my throat started to constrict and I came out of this toilet and my face was red and I didn't know what was happening and I got through the hotel to where my course was and I said, you know, is there a, a doctor or something in this hotel or, you know, like get me an ambulance or something and they got me an ambulance and the ambulance came and rushed me off to the hospital and they did all these tests and they said what had happened was that I'd had anaphylaxis so that I'd had an allergic reaction to something that I'd eaten. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so what I know now is that I'd had a panic attack. <laughs> right, okay. um, Yeah, but I, when I was in the ambulance, my work colleague who I'd just met, she got in the ambulance with me because they went in and got her and got my stuff out and stuff. And um, when they were asking me questions, I didn't say I was six months clean and sober from, 
you know, alcohol, cocaine, speed, ecstasy, marijuana, you know, all the things that I'd stopped doing. And so um, I didn't tell them that. So they didn't have all the information. So what happened then is I became very anxious over food. So I, anytime I had like any kind of um, uh, itchy skin, uh, tight throat, um, heartburn, any kind of physical reaction whilst I was eating, I got I got scared, and that food got completely wiped out of uh, my. Because you know, thought you might have been allergic to it, but you yeah, didn't yeah. I had I had tests. I sent my poo to Germany. On <laughs> <laughs> <was like>, Korea. <laughs> like yeah and it was like what am I doing you know I look back and I think it was quite hilarious now and um imagine being the receptionist opening that parcel <laughs> exactly and so they did all these tests and they said things like you know any even like like I found my results one day and it was like you've got such a mild intolerance to um egg yolk or something and uh, plums coffee you know prunes you know all these different things so boom 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 they all went you know nothing was on there and I mean, I've, I've got chickens with my partner now and I love their eggs and I eat their eggs all the time, you know, but anything that any of these tests said you even had a mild reaction to, I stopped eating. Right. And um, so then I had, uh, yeah, more, more panic attacks. I called ambulances again, thinking that I'd had some kind of reaction and um so seafood went fish went you know you know and I used to eat pretty much for lunch most days I would go to because they had baked potatoes everywhere in the UK I'd have a baked potato with tuna and corn and mayo or something and that went you know like I had I had a and and it was just anxiety like I didn't I didn't know and I tried um uh, eventually they put me on antidepressants for panic disorder um, I had some time off work because I just wasn't coping and of course then the, the antidepressants kind of did their job and so I thought oh yeah I'm all good you know like I tried a little bit of therapy at the time I had the support of the 12-step groups mm -hmm. so so that kind of that kind of worked but fast forward 10 years later um, I was talking to a lady in um, Alcoholics Anonymous and she said have you ever looked at the side effects of drug withdrawal and I said no, because I was telling her my my story because we hadn't met. And she said, I think you need to look at, you know, research some of the things and maybe go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Because when I stopped, I didn't go to NA. I only went to AA because I knew instinctively my main issue was the alcohol. Mm -hmm. You know, like the drugs I still had a bit of a fear of. I didn't do so much of the drugs because I got scared. I had some experiences that scared me. And I had probably more scary experiences on alcohol, but it, it was doing something for me, you know? And yeah. so, yeah. And so she got me to look and I, I am uh, a friend of mine sent me some information on pause, which is P A W S post acute withdrawal syndrome. <gasps> Mind blown. That's what was happening. That kind of can start six months after you stop taking drugs. When really? the drug, yeah. Oh. And I was, I was like, what? How did no one ever tell me this? But yeah, because I'd gone to AA and not to NA, you know, right. like, so I wasn't yeah. seeing that what was happening is the itchy skin was all the drugs coming out of my, my system and the toxins coming out through your skin, like you know, later. six months later. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so um, you have physiological changes in the brain from drugs. And so all of those things were starting to change in my brain. And 
yeah, I, the, the panic, the anxiety, all of these things were listed under post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And it was just like, wow, for 10 years, I went down the road of food allergies and food intolerances, and I became very food phobic. Uh, at my largest, I was 104 kilograms. But when I was having these anxiety attacks, I was down at 62 kilograms, um, unhealthily though, you know, like, yeah. so now I sit at 66 to 68 because I'm healthy and I exercise and I, you know, look after myself. But at that point, I was just skin and bone. And I, I literally would get up in the morning I would have gluten-free toast with um, baked beans. They had to be Heinz baked beans only. Then for lunch, I would have corn thins, ham and cheese. And then for dinner, I would have a chicken breast and, and some you know, steamed vegetables. And I had that every day for months. And I mm. was so constipated because I wasn't getting the fiber. I wasn't getting the, 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 the nutrition that my body needed, you know. But I, everything... And that was what that's, you knew would be okay. That's, that's right. Everything yeah. else terrified me. You right. know, um, every time I had a reaction, I, you know, I, I remember an ex-boyfriend, uh, uh, the first date, I sat in my room, in my bedroom and ate my lunch before we went out on the date because I couldn't eat in front of a man, you know, right. like, because yeah. all of these things just made me feel more anxious. And because yeah. I was worried about the food anyway, and then having a man sitting opposite me, well, that just added a whole other layer of anxiety, a new man that I didn't know. And so, yeah, so I, I think, gosh, I'm surprised he came back for more. But, um, <laughs> you know. Like... And were you on antidepressants at that time? Yeah, so I was yeah. on and off antidepressants for 16 years. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I've been off them now four years completely. Uh, yeah. But yeah, on and off them. So I, I, I came off them when I got into some really good spaces and I, you know, I had um, a really good psychotherapist and I got into, you know, she helped me get a lot of the food back into my diet right. because what happened is when, what happened when I put, when I had the antidepressants the first time and the, the fear started to diminish, I started to add foods back in and that partner actually that I didn't, you know, didn't eat in front of, he actually helped me a lot to add more foods in, but then I got the sugar back in. And right. so then I went to the other extreme and ended up 104 kilograms. So he okay. met me, he met me at 62 kilograms. And when he left, I was 104 kilograms. Right. So, you know, so I'd put all that weight on because then I got into the overindulging on the sugar. And then that became kind of my new fix. So I was on and off the antidepressants, but also suppressing my feelings with, uh, you know, sugar and overeating. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like daily kind of overeating. Yeah, yeah, definitely got, definitely got to daily. Like I've, it's so hard because it's my, my story is so into, into, you know, it's when did I do that again? Like I had the, yeah, I had, yeah. you know, like I had the food and then I had the alcohol, then I had the drugs, then I had the food again, then I, then I didn't have the food, you know, like I've done periods of sugar-free and I've done periods of intense exercise with personal trainers and then gone back to, onto the sugar again and, you know, like I've I've been in and out of all these different phases that sometimes it's hard to remember what happened when. But, um, you know, like when I, my most recent um, overeating, I used to eat three or four ice creams a day. You know, right. so um, big hokies they were. They had to be a big hokie. I became obsessed with big hokies. But I've had, I've, I've sat and, and put like a whole bag of marshmallows with a whole litre of custard and eaten that from the bowl and king-size bars of chocolate. In the UK, they have a kilogram of galaxy and I could eat a kilogram of, of, of chocolate in one sitting, you know. Yeah. Um, I just didn't, I didn't have an off switch uh, okay. for, for sugar, just like I did for the alcohol, really. Yeah. 
and that's yeah. kind of related isn't it if like sugar there's alcohol is so high sugar that it kind of sets a tone for that when you do stop drinking yeah and and you know you're actually you know told by people oh you, you might have sugar withdrawal so have some sugar because mm. you might think you want to have a drink but actually what you're wanting is sugar so have some sugar so I don't necessarily agree with that now because that actually just set me up for having sugar all the time. Um, yeah. Probably would have been best to just withdraw off everything. But um, yeah, I, I do of... I do also understand that message of like rather have some sugar than have an alcohol have an alcoholic beverage and end up in you know blackout and doing all the things that you used to do. So yeah, yeah, but it can set you up for other things like the weight gain and whatever else you know health yeah. issues. So. Yeah, and I had the sugar before I had the alcohol. You know, like I loved sugar as a kid. I loved lollies and ice creams and all of those things even yeah. before I had the alcohol. So we're almost conditioned to it at this point in time, aren't we? It's like the the lollies at the corner dairy and the ice yep. cream and all of that stuff. It's grandparents buying treats for yes grandkids and you know <laughs> exactly from yeah. a very young age yeah what we think is a treat but really it's like toxin to our body <laughs> yeah addictive yeah. and yeah not good for us but yeah um, ah, so you've how many years now have you been sober 20 years I was this year, so I celebrated really? 20, oh, yeah. Congratulations, that's yeah. a big milestone. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I was pretty stoked, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so no I've, relapses in between that time? No, no, yeah. not one. Yeah, so I know that, you know, some people come and they relapse in and out. Some people come like myself, never have a drink again. Um, yeah. I always think it depends on how desperate you are and how much you want it, you know. Like I was pretty desperate by the time I got to my first meeting and then – the people that surrounded me really supported me and helped me to see, you know, what the effects were and where I was kind of heading, especially with the blackouts. Yeah. So I, um, I think sometimes like people I've spoken to have, have kind of thought when you're not drinking, your life and fun are over and you're just living this other boring life that's got nothing to look forward to, you know, sober yeah. weddings and sober whatever there might be. So you can attest that that's not the case. You've oh, absolutely. Like I um, I so thought that when I first stopped, you know, and people said that, oh, you're boring now and stuff. And for a little while I was because I was in this place of like, ah, I've got to stay so sober and serious and stuff. But, yeah. I mean, I, I go to the Orm Music Festival every New Year's. I danced um, three uh, three marathons in three days last year or the year before you know the equivalent the, the equivalent of with my step count um you know like I I do dress ups I've gone clubbing you know like I went to Ministry of Sound and Pasha while I was in London big clubs while I was sober you know like it hasn't stopped me doing anything actually in fact being sober I think I'm more fun and I remember everything the next day yeah so you know like tarnishing that fun experience with a hangover yeah so <laughs> I, I remember all the things that I've done and said you know like I'd still I still dance on on tables and all sorts of stuff but I remember yeah. that I've done it and I keep my I keep my clothes on um, <laughs> I, I danced to the um it was a, a an 80s or a, a 70s disco night or something at Galatos and I got on stage you know a 44 year old woman and did the whole of it's raining men by myself to the whole club and I'm like tell me that's not fun I'm you know this yeah, yeah. And, you know and everybody probably thought I was drunk but I was stone cold sober you know <laughs> love it <laughs> so I have yeah I have a lot of fun yeah awesome all right um 
so from there you discovered rapid transformational therapy and went to London to train in this area were you already in London or did you no no I went to London so yeah so I came back to New Zealand in 2005 yeah um and then you know on and off through through those years until 2017 I was always sober uh, but I was up and down with the food and I stopped smoking in that time and my partner left and went back to London and um, then I was single for for 11 years um pretty much after he left a few little you know um what I wouldn't really call relationships but a few little you know things in there but um and then in 2017, I was kind of really overworking. I was, you know, workaholic, basically. The anxiety was back. I'd, you know, re- gone back on the uh, antidepressants again after a period of being off them. I was back overeating. The sugar was back in my life. I was back up to about 90 kilograms. And I was sober, but I was pretty miserable, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and I was doing 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks at some points with a big project at work wow. and um, severely imposter syndrome. I can see that now looking back, but um, I, yeah, I came across Marissa Peer. Somebody sent me her video um, and it used to be called the biggest challenge affecting humanity is the belief that I'm not enough. And uh, I think it's been renamed now, but um, I watched it and I the night before, so I, I turned 40 to give a bit of context. I turned 40 and I thought that I had no problem with turning 40. Like everyone was like, oh, 40, 40. And I was like, it's just a number. Age has never been an issue for me. And but I turned forty, and also it was like a switch went in my head or something. I was like, I'm I'm fat, I'm overweight, I'm miserable, I'm eating overeating again. Uh, I'm just working and going to meetings. Um, you know, I wasn't having fun at that point. I wasn't dancing on stages and doing all the fun things that I do now. I'd you know regressed, I suppose, a little bit. And um, I did a skydive for SPCA for my 40th birthday and I had a party and people donated to, to SPCA for me and I and I went home from my party where all my closest loving friends had been and, you know, been amazing and I went and found, I think it took me four petrol stations before I found the big hokey at one o'clock in the morning and I ate them sitting on my couch behind me feeling miserable, you know. Yeah. And it was like, I've just had a party where people have been there for me and supporting me. Like, what is going on here? I just felt so low. And so I um, I came home the following week on the Friday night from after my party and, um, and after the skydive. And uh, there was a box from SPCA because I'd been one of the top fundraisers. I got um, dog treats, cat treats, oh, human treats. And there was a box of scorched almonds in there. Now, I already had inhaled one of my ice creams in the car on the way home. So I'd eaten one and I had three more. And I had another one and I put one in the freezer. So I had three ice creams and the whole box of scorched almonds. And I went to bed. And I couldn't lie on my back because my stomach hurt. I couldn't lie on my stomach because my stomach hurt. I was literally in the fetal position. And, you know, being the 12-step spiritual program, I think I'm pretty sure I called out to my higher power and said something has to change or please help me or I don't know, something happened. And at 3.30 in the morning, my cat woke me up and she was crying. And so I sorted her out and I got back into bed and my head was just racing with all these thoughts. I hate my job. I hate my life. I hate me. I'm fat. I'm miserable. I'm 40. I'm single. You know, like I don't have any kids. I don't have a life. All of this stuff. It's just work, work, work and all of this. 
and I just couldn't cope with the racing head. So I got my phone and I clicked on YouTube and just to distract anything, distract my brain. And the first thing that came up was the Marissa Peer video again. And I'd started watching a little bit of it and then turned it off. So it was the last thing I watched. So it was sitting there and I thought, hey, what the hell? I'm just going to watch it. Yeah. So that was at about 4.30 in the morning. By 5.30, I was in my lounge with magazines, a piece of cardboard, scissors, cutting out pictures for a, for a vision board for what I wanted. I'd had this amazing aha moment that, oh, my God, I don't believe I'm enough. I'm not good right. enough alcoholic. I'm not good enough drug addict. I'm not good enough weight. I'm not, you know, like it was just like this switch went in my brain and I just was like, wow, I've never believed that I'm good enough, you know, like uh, I'm not cool enough at school. So that's why I started drinking and smoking because now I'm cool, you know, um, all of these things. And in the videos that I watched, because I just binge watched her videos back to back, all the ones that I could find, she does these things where she gets you to imagine you're eating a lemon and um, I can't, like when I say to my clients now, close your eyes and see a lemon. I can't see a lemon. It's total darkness when I close my eyes, but I know what a lemon looks like. And I pretend to bring the lemon to my mouth and I'm like, oh my God, even now doing it, I haven't even given myself much, you know, talking up. My mouth starts to saliva. I start to cringe because I know what biting into a lemon would be like really bitter. And it's like, oh my God, there's no lemon there, but my mind and body is reacting like there's a lemon. And I was like, how have I not known how powerful my mind is? And she does this one where she gets you to put your arm out and twist it around and then tell your arm to go further and it goes further. And I was like, oh my God, my arm just went further. And, you know, and it was like yeah. all these things. Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like one after the other. And, um, and I, and I, she says like, right, I'm enough on your mirrors and, you know, put it everywhere and stuff. And this is what my mind said. Cause I was like, oh, I'm going to get a whiteboard marker and write, I'm enough, but your handwriting's not good enough. Oh, I was like, are you kidding me? So yeah. by, the, by the end of that day, I got my whiteboard marker out. I wrote I am enough on the mirrors. Four years, yeah. over four years later, it's still there. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and um, I've got it everywhere. I can just look up from where I am now. I am strong. I am beautiful. I am enough, you know, things around me. I just started putting it everywhere, and I just binge watched her videos. I listened to the I am enough one over and over and and um, started saying I am enough. I'd drive in the car and say I am enough, and um, – as I binge watched her videos, this was in April 2017, I came across a video that said, you can do what I do. You can train to become a rapid transformational therapist. And for the first time in 40 years, I knew what I was meant to do. Like I get, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm actually saying this to you now. My head's all tingly and my body feels all like I can feel it, you know, coming the, yeah. ting the tingle coming across me. Because I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. And part of my mind went, well, who are you to be a therapist? And I was like, well, who am I not to be? You know, like I've yeah, mentored. all that life experience. and Yeah, you know. and I'd, I'd mentored women in um, Alcoholics Anonymous and taken them through, you know, taken them through the, the big book and the steps, you know, the, the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'd given, you know, I'd done lots of therapy myself. <laughs> you know, I'd been in therapy for years. Yeah. And so I was like, I can do this. And it was like, it was really deep in my gut that I knew I could do this. Excuse me. And so I, um, I, I had the, you had to have a webinar with, with Marissa and the team. Then you had a call with another person who had done the therapy and was a therapist who'd done the training and was a therapist. There was a process that you went through. So I went through the process 
I spoke to this amazing woman, Karen, in Australia, who I'm still very close friends with today. And, you know, we've become really close. And um, she talked about her own experience training and gave me some tips and stuff. I went to the bank. I got a loan. I booked my tickets to London. I spoke to no one. Now, up until this point, any decision that I made, I'd spoken to my sponsor in AA, my sponsor in Al-Anon, my parents, friends, somebody, anybody, help me make a decision. Yeah. With this, I knew. I just knew. So I, I, I went that that night that I first started watching her videos that track back to that first night, um, five thirty in the morning. I consciously ate my last big hokey ice cream, and I haven't had one since. And right. that was that was before I had the therapy. That's before I had any hypno, hypnosis. That was before I did any of of what I do now with clients. It was just from the understanding that I was getting from the videos and and it just clicked in my brain. And so I consciously ate it, threw it threw the wrapper away, and that's the last time I that I had any, you know, kind of um ice cream. And um that was something that I ate every single day, you know, for months and months. Uh, I'm not quite sure how long it went on. And so, you know, like it just changed me so much that I was like, I'm going to go and train, train to do this. So that yeah. was in the April 17. In July 17, I had been to London and, and qualified to a certain level. And then you have a, years of, a year of online training afterwards. Yeah. Um, but I was seeing clients in July. Right. So yeah. it, was, it was that quick, you know. Yeah. And um, How and did you I, find clients for that? Just so it just started being my friends. So, you know, like I, because I was talking about it and going, oh my God, this is the change that, and they could see it, of course. People around me could see how, how much I had changed in a short space of time. And um, because, you know, rapid transformation, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's quite quick. And so because they could see that, I, I just started seeing, seeing friends and treating friends. And I, I still worked, you know, in my corporate job and I did four days a week. And so I just had Fridays where I would see people or work on the business, start doing thinking of the business, things like that. And then I went down to three days and eventually I went down to, um, eventually I left and, and have been doing it full time, you know, since 2018. And, but it was, it, it was one of those things that I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. Yeah. You know, and you're still loving it now. After yeah, 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 absolutely. It changed my whole life. Like, um, so you know, just a, a summary. Like, I dropped twenty two kilograms, twenty to twenty two kilograms, um, depending on the time of the month. Um, yeah. uh, with this therapy, I was on and off antidepressants for sixteen years. I've been off them for four years. I was single for eleven years. I'm now in the most loving relationship I've ever been in in my entire life for over three years. Um, I had major intimacy relationship blocks, and and you know, like you know, I'm in this amazing relationship with incredible intimacy. I um, was so you know, like I appeared confident on the outside but I wasn't on the inside now the insides match the outsides uh you know like it's just changed so much the anxiety the panic attacks you know I had three sessions of of this and I you know I call them hula dancers now because I don't even like saying panic attacks, but I haven't had a major hula, hula dance. dance. <laughs> yeah. Cause your, yeah, because your mind creates, you know, yeah. creates what we talk about. So the more we talk about things, the more we actually have the power to create them. So yeah, I'd like yeah. to I I'm happy to create a hula dance, but not a yeah, not the PA word. And yeah. so so um I, I mean I literally I called an ambulance one day um in two thousand and 
I think it was 2013 or 14, I think, uh, when I first, so I, I, I moved from Alcoholics Anonymous to Al-Anon, which is for friends and family members, and that helps you with relationship stuff as well and work stuff, amazingly, and that was in 2013. And when I first went there, I, you know, ended up in an ambulance one day in Aotea Square, called, a, called got somebody, gave somebody my phone, called an ambulance, thought it was having anaphylaxis with a packet of chips or something. Of course, yes. it was just a panic attack. Yeah. And um, she called the ambulance. Ambulance came, checked me over, just a panic attack. And I just went back to work and acted as if nothing happened. You know, right. like shaking. That's quite a I was... traumatic experience for a day, right? Like yeah. go home and have a nap or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, I went back. No, no, I can still do this. I can still do this. You know, and they they, they did a uh, – and then the next one I had, I was actually in the office. They, and they had to call an ambulance for me. So I couldn't kind of hide that one. Because yeah. I did I did do a good job of hiding this from a lot of people. A lot of people in my life would not have known that that's the, the level of anxiety that I had. I didn't share it. I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I felt like I wasn't good enough because of it, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that somehow maybe I'd caused this. But whether I did or not, you know, now is irrelevant. It's been part of my journey. It's part of who I am. And everything that I have been through, I can use to help someone else now. And I think it's quite important that we have these conversations and that's the reason for the podcast is that people in corporate jobs or, you know, it's not the stereotypical drunk that has a problem. Like a lot of us have problems with different things and anxiety and panic attacks and appear normal. I'm doing air quotes here. but Yeah, yeah, know, we, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, um, what is normal? Yeah. yeah, and when we all do that and play pretend, yeah. people feel like they're, less normal because they don't see our suffering or yes. what we're going through. So I think yeah. having these conversations is important because people can be like, oh, yeah, you too. When you, <laughs> when you project perfection, when you project I'm in control, I've got everything under control, I'm, I'm amazing, I'm whatever, when you project that and it's not true, people go, well, I can't live up to that, you yeah. know, because it's yeah. not real. It's not real. You know, yeah. real is stress real is anxiety real is problems in life we're all human we all have these things I mean listening to you know previous podcasts like you say um you know you, the people that you've had on like Nathan the cop right you know like you wouldn't look at a cop and think oh that you've got things like this but he talked mm. about he talked about you know you've got to eat to survive you know and he and and stuff and it's like like you can't give up food and I was like when I was listening to that I was like that's so true like I easily you know not easily but I gave up alcohol drugs smoking I don't have to have them I still have to eat with a food mm. addiction with a history of binge eating yeah. you know so there's things like that and you know um Someone else I listened to, uh, Sarah, I really identified with, you know, your episode with with Sarah and, yeah. you know, finding the things that brought her joy, you know, like that we need to do these things. And, and like they're just we're just normal. Like some people think, oh, you're a therapist, you're you're dealing with, you know, mental people and people with all these issues and it's depressing and da, da, da. and I'm like no because I get to free them of those issues, mm, yeah. you know, like and I, I don't think you can them. just. You can't just call a segment of people having mental issues because everyone with a body has mental issues. You know, exactly. still air quoting. Yeah. Yes. If you've got a mind, then there is a chance that it's not perfect. And the chance is about 100% because yes. at some point in your life, there will be something going on. And, you know, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, that's right. That's the thing. That's the difference, the consciously aware. So, you know, it's like, oh, no, I don't have any mental health issues. I'm fine. 
oh, but yeah. what's that angry rash all over your body? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. oh, but that's a physical thing. And I'm like, yeah, but a lot of our physical things are caused by our mental anguish that we've either suppressed or, you know, like we might not be expressing our anger. So our body expresses it for us, you know, mm. um, even in very in ways you might not connect like irritable bowel syndrome or yes. you know, things like this that yeah. people don't connect with mood yeah. or mental health. Yeah. But it's, your gut is very connected to your Absolutely. I mean, I had gut issues for years because of the the stress and stuff that I was under. And it's like my gut and bowel is the best it's ever been. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I had a session with the with a with a lady this week for headaches. And um, what did her mind say in the therapy and under hypnosis? It said, I'm here to stop you to slow you down to give you a break because you're working too much. You're busy. You're not stopping and you're not looking after yourself. So I give you a headache because then what do you do? You stop, you lie down, you rest. Mm, yeah, you know, it's like, like the body's warning signal. The train yeah. tracks are opening up. and Yeah, yeah. it's like when we're, when we're overdoing it, um, a, a, a lady that I had a, a different type of um, therapy session with, she, took, she terms it the burnout overload safety system. And okay. like when you're close to burnout, your mind goes, nah, I'm going to flick the switch on the burnout overload safety switch and I'm going to send you irritable bowel, constipation, diarrhea, headaches, migraines, stomach problems, a sickness of some kind because I just want you to stop. Yeah. You know, I need you to stop. I need you to take a break. I need you to rest. And you're not. So I'm going to stop you before you get to full burnout. Yeah. So just to, you mentioned hypnosis before. I don't know a lot about hypnosis, um, but that's part of the treatment that you offer, is that? Yeah, so rapid transformational therapy is what I do, but it's a mixture of hypnosis, hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, neuro-linguistic programming, and other psychotherapy techniques. So Marissa Peer put this therapy together from her 30 plus years of of therapy, you know, skills. And so she now teaches people all over the world how to do this therapy. So we're all, you know, we're all part of her membership and and we can, you know, we give the the therapy. But can you learn that online? You can. You can't travel to London now. That's right. Yes, yes, I believe you can. You can do the whole thing online. So um, uh, I'm not sure how they're doing it with how it worked for me. But yeah, I do know that they do have an online training course. And so... Basically, um, you know, in a, in a session with me, hypnosis is just an altered, relaxed state of awareness that we all go into. So if you've ever been driving down the road and then gone, oh, God, I don't remember the last intersection. Did I go through a red light? Did I, oh yeah, God, yeah. you know, like. I can get to a whole destination with thinking like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Are we okay? How did I, how did I get here? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the brainwave of hypnosis. Right. So the subconscious has taken over because you've driven a car so many times, your brain knows how to drive a car. So if your conscious mind is thinking about the day, what's been going on, the fight you had with your partner, the work stress, COVID, whatever, you know, your conscious mind's busy, your subconscious mind's taken over. And then when you get to your destination, you're like, oh, Oh God, how did I get here? You know, oh God, I hope I didn't do anything wrong, you know? Yeah. And and that's just hypnosis. Or if you're ever deep in a book or watching TV and somebody's calling your name, you're in the brainwave of hypnosis, right? Okay. And children are in that brainwave from zero to seven, and that's how they learn and absorb because they're mm-hmm. just like little sponges. And so in a session with me, I like to describe it like the mind's like a computer and 
all the behaviors that we see, so the drinking, the drugs, the smoking, the overeating, the anxiety, panic attacks, all the things that I've experienced were all just programs. So, you know, it was like a computer program running in my brain that I picked up somewhere based on a belief, based on a thought, based on an experience. So it can be like post-traumatic stress, something's happened and your mind's replaying it over and over again. You know, it's replaying that stressful situation. And so that's the program that's running. So in a session, I put someone into hypnosis, a relaxed state of awareness where we can talk between the conscious and the subconscious. And then the subconscious will reveal the program. And that could be that when I was five, my mummy didn't give me enough ice cream. And so I said, when I'm old enough and I leave home, I'm going to eat ice cream every single day. Boom. There's the program. Right. And so, it can literally be that simple. It can literally be that simple. Wow. It okay. is. It is. That's the, the, the brain is that simple. It's like, yeah. it's, it's not logical, but it's simple. Like, um, I'm going to make you fat so that men can't hurt you. Well, men can still hurt fat people. That's, you know, or anyone can hurt fat people. No, no offense to men here, but you know, like that's what a little, a little child's mind or, you know, a young teenage girl being hurt by a man can say, the mind can go, oh, well, if you were overweight, he wouldn't have found you attractive. He wouldn't have hurt you. Boom. There you go. There's the program. I'm going to protect you by keeping you overweight. Now it's, it's not true. It's not logical. Um, You know, the, the, the headaches. Oh, but I'm doing you a good job because I'm stopping you. But now I'm in agony in a darkened room. I can't interact with my children. I can't work. I can't do anything that's going to, you know, progress yeah. my life. because so There I'm are healthier ways to um, give me warning signs. Self. That, that's right. But because yeah. we didn't listen to those warning signs or because yeah. our mind learned, like, you know, like, oh, when I'm sick, mummy pays me a lot of attention. Ah, mm. I'm going to get sick to get attention. It's things like that that we see, you know, with, with clients I've seen in my own life, you know, um, that that we, you know, it's, it's like the episode with Steph, you know, you've got to go within. You've got to go within. And what I do is I help people go within. I help people go within to find the program and then upgrade it. Or delete it, just like I would an app on my laptop or my cell phone or even my watch, you know, like my swim watch, I have to update the software. So why wouldn't I update the software of my own mind, mm, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like um, I always use making the bed as an example because I, I don't make the bed every day. Well, I have been lately. I'm on this challenge and part of it's making the bed every day. So I am actually making the bed every day. But um, historically, I haven't made the bed every day because – when I was young, my mind decided that making the bed was painful. Now, it really wasn't. But yeah. I was a little child. I didn't want to make the bed. I probably wanted to play or do something fun or whatever. And, yeah. you know, my mum was teaching me, when you leave home, you're going to have to know how to, you know, look after yourself and look after your house and, you know, make the bed and things like that. But my little mind went, when I'm old enough and I leave home, I'm never going to make the bed. Right. So so I leave home and I never make the bed. Now I, I leave home and I go, why don't I make the bed? I don't know. What happened, you know, or why did I start eating ice cream every day at 21, you know, and I start looking around 21. What happened to me at 21? No, it's what happened to me at four, five, six, seven, where I programmed the program. The program yeah. just started running when I was 21 because the conditions had been met. When I'm old enough, I leave home. I've got my own job. I've got enough money. Boom, boom, boom. All, all conditions are met. I'm going to run this program now. Yeah, we are no longer making the bed. <laughs> we're no longer making the bed or, you know, we're going to eat ice cream every day, you know. Yeah. And it's like, God, did something happen to me at 21 that made me eat ice cream every day? Yeah, right. the program. So once you've identified these things, do you work with people to kind of yeah, so them? Yeah, so yeah. so that within a session we can either delete it, 
Um, if the part of you is there to, to protect you and help you, then you might want to upgrade it to help you in a different way. Like you said, there's healthier ways to stop me and give me a warning sign that I need to take a break and take a rest. So, you know, instead of sending me a headache, maybe send me a, um, you know, something else, you know, and, and we work with each client, you know, um, to say, what what could your mind do to give you a little warning, you know? Um, and if you go too far and you get the headache, you know, ah, oh, I didn't stop, I didn't rest because you've got that understanding now that awareness yeah. so so we might completely let go of parts you know we might just say no I don't need you anymore I'm not five not being allowed to have sugar every day um, yeah. if I want to have an ice cream every day I can but I'm choosing not to because actually I'm a grown woman now and I want to have a slim fit healthy body instead yeah. Um, yeah. you know so we let go of that part of us or you know I want to make the bed every day so let's run a making the bed program so every yeah. morning you're going to give me a little jolt so that I get out of bed and make my bed you know yeah um you know so we can we can change it and I, I always try and use the client's words you know so um if a client says I'm not enough then in their recording because I make everyone their own personalized hypnotic recording that they then listen to for a minimum of 30 days but as long as they need to to see change um, because change happens to for people in different time frames. Um, but they listen to that, and then that might say, if a client said, I'm lovable, I don't then go in there recording, I'm enough, I'm enough. I'll say, you're lovable, you know, you right. always have been, or I'm not their language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what's the great thing about um, hypnosis is the mind, we have everything within us. We have all the answers. So I can get my clients, like even if a client comes to me and says, I want to drop some weight, I want to lose weight, I say, well, what weight is your ideal weight? And they're like, I don't actually know. That's all right. I don't mind. Put you into hypnosis. And your mind will tell you your ideal weight is 66 kilograms or 72 kilograms or whatever your ideal weight is. And then that's right. what that's So what you I do think. actually know, but you're not really... You might not know consciously, but yeah. your your higher self, your inner knowing, your inner consciousness, there's so many different ways of people wording it, but we know the answers within us. Mm, yeah. We just have programs running that have taught us maybe not to look within, you know, mm. like we're all looking without, looking where's the solution outside of myself. But if I stop and I go within, I know what's going on. I know what I need, you yeah. know. So if I have a reaction to something, like I had a, I had a reaction to sugar-free products recently. I, I had a Red Bull and I had a sugar-free chocolate bar and I was very sick. Like I literally was, was vomiting and diarrhea on the toilet. And yeah. whilst I was there, I put myself into hypnosis and my body said, please don't ever do this to me again. Yeah. You know, it said, um, these sugar-free products are not good for you. And, um, you know, I'm sending you the message now because, you know, like I, you know, like I had a, I have a Red Bull once uh, at the Orm festivals. I'll have a couple cause I'm dancing for 16 hours, you know, um, uh, you know, but generally I have them. That's it. Maybe twice a year. Um, yeah. But this one time my body just went, nah, this is just, it's toxic. It's a chemical. It's, it's not real, you know? Yeah. And so my my mind and body has the answers you know um mm -hmm. i have a little bit of indigestion right now um and i could in the past i would have had anxiety over that because there's a there's a kind of a, a burning type of pain in my chest and it's like i know that i didn't eat lunch i ate lunch too close to having this you know podcast interview with you and yeah. i rushed and i rushed and ate too fast so i didn't digest enough because i'd had a phone call and i you know i should have gone actually no now's not a good time to talk because i wanted to eat early and da -da -da. i know that that's what's going on in my body 
Yeah. I don't, so I don't have to go, oh my God, something's happening to me. I'm talking to Jenna and I'm going to have a heart attack or, you know, like all of these things yeah. that, I, that I would have done in, in the past, you know, with anxiety, I would have thought this physical symptom means, you know, the food that I ate was, I'm allergic to it. I'm, I'm going to die. All of this kind of stuff would happen in my brain. Um, yeah. But it's amazing how even under hypnosis, when the clients are going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, and then you put them into hypnosis and you go, I'm the part that knows. I'm the part that knows everything that's right for Jenna and, yeah. you know, what Jenna needs to be her most healthier self is stop doing this, start doing that, exercise more, eat healthier, drink more water, whatever it is, your mind gives that answer to you. You know, like I've had people say, you know, under hypnosis, go and see that um person that you get those supplements from and ask for this particular supplement you know like and I'm like well I couldn't have come up with that yeah <laughs> so, so I couldn't have gone on yeah yeah this is what you need so the more I get my clients to give me the solution from their mind the the more success they have when I put in what I think is right for them it may or may not be but you know, like um, it's it's so much better when you, they go within and find the, the the program and delete it, upgrade. It. I say, well, if you could reprogram it, if you could choose a different program, what would that be? Yeah. You know, yeah. oh, I would choose to spend time with my children instead of worrying so much about the laundry. You know, yeah. um, you know, the, the washing can get done whenever, or the cleaning can get done with whatever. I actually, I'm going to prefer to spend time with my kids. You know, like um, they, all of that comes from from them. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, that sounds like a very cool um, way to help people and definitely have a business doing that and um, spending your time. So, yeah, I, I love think, it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today, especially your personal um, story, which is an amazing share. I'm sure there are lots of people who can relate to many different things that have happened in your life. Um, yeah, it's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unpacking Mental Health. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do this by clicking the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. And this is a $5 donation, which will keep the podcast ad-free and go towards covering the expenses. And I would love, love, love if you could give my Instagram and Facebook a follow and I will update you with the next podcast. So have a great day and I hope you enjoy.